0: Chapter 1 of The Confession. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Confession by Mary Roberts Reinhardt. Chapter 1 I am not a susceptible woman. I am objective rather than subjective. And a fairly full experience of life has taught me. "'that most of my impressions are from within out "'rather than the other way about. "'For instance, obsession at one time a few years ago "'of a shadowy figure on my right just beyond the field of vision "'was later exposed as the result of a defect in my glasses. "'In the same way Maggie, my old servant, "'was during one entire summer haunted by church bells "'and considered it a personal summons to eternity.' until it was shown to be in her inner ear. Yet the benton house undeniably made men comfortable. Perhaps it was because it had remained unchanged for so long. The old horsehair chairs, with their shiny mahogany frames, showed by the slightly worn places in the carpet before them, that they had not deviated an inch from their position for many years. The carpets—carpets carpets that reached to the very baseboards— and gave under one's feet, with the yielding of heavy padding beneath, were bright under beds and wardrobes, while in the centres of the rooms they had faded into the softness of old tapestry. Maggie, I remember, on our arrival, moved a chair from the wall in the library and immediately put it back again with a glance to see if I had observed her. "'It's nice and clean, Miss Agnes,' she said. "'I, uh, kind of feel... "'that a little dirt would make it more homelike. "'I'm sure I don't see why,' I replied rather sharply. "'I've lived in a tolerably clean house most of my life.' "'Maggie, however, was digging a hill into the padded carpet. "'She had chosen a sunny place for the experiment, "'and a small cloud of dust rose like smoke. "'Churms!' she said. "'Just what I expected. "'We'd better bring the vacuum cleaner out from the city, Miss Agnes.' "'Them carpets have been lifted for years!' "'But I paid little attention to her. "'To Maggie, any particle of matter not otherwise classified is a germ, "'and the prospect of finding dust in that immaculate house "'was sufficiently thrilling to tide over "'the strangeness of our first few hours in it. "'Once a year I rent a house in the country. "'When my nephew and niece were children,' I did it to take them out of the city during school vacations. Later, when they grew up, it was to be near the country club. But now, with the children married and new families coming along, we were more concerned with dairies than with clubs, and I inquired more carefully about the neighborhood cows and about the neighborhood golf links. I had really selected the house at Menton Station, because there was a most alluring pasture, with a brook running through it, "'and violets over the banks. "'It seemed to me that no cow with a conscience "'could live in those surroundings and give colicky milk. "'Then the house was cheap, unbelievably cheap. "'I suspected sewerage at once, "'but it seemed to be in the best possible order. "'Indeed, new plumbing had been put in, "'and extra bathrooms installed. "'As old Miss Emily Benton lived there alone, "'with only an old couple to look after her, It looked odd to see three bathrooms, two of them new on the second floor. Big tubs and showers, although little old Miss Emily could have bathed in a wash-bowl and have had room to spare. I faced the agent downstairs in the parlor after I had gone over the house. Miss Emily Bandon had not appeared, and I took it. She was away. "'Why all those bathrooms?' I demanded. "'Does she use them in rotation?' He shrugged his shoulders. "'She wished to rent the house, Miss Blakiston, the old-fashioned plumbing. "'But she's giving the house away!' I exclaimed. "'Those bathrooms have cost much more than she will get out of it. "'You and I know that the price is absurd.' "'He smiled at that. "'If you wish to pay more, you may, of course. "'She's a fine woman, Miss Blakiston, "'but you can never measure a benton with any yardstick but her own.' "'The truth is that she wants the house off her hands this summer. "'I don't know why. "'It's a good house, and she has lived here all her life. "'But my instructions, I'll tell you frankly, "'are to rent it if I have to give it away.' "'With which absurd sentence we went out the front door, "'and I saw the pasture, which decided me. "'In view of the fact that I had taken the house "'for my grand nieces and nephews, "'It was annoying to find by the end of June "'that I should have to live in it by myself. Willie's boy was having his teeth straightened "'and must make daily visits to the dentist, "'and Jack went to California "'and took Gertrude and the boys with him. "'The first curious thing happened then. "'I wrote to the agent saying that I would not use the house, "'but enclosing a check for its rental, "'as I had signed the lease. "'To my surprise, I received in reply a note from Miss Emily herself, very carefully written on thin note-paper. Although it was years since I had seen her, the exquisite neatness of the letter, its careful paragraphing, its margins so accurate as to give the impression that she had drawn a faint margin line with a lead pencil, and then erased it, all these were as indicative of Emily Benton as, well, as the letter was not. As well as I can explain it, The letter was impulsive, almost urgent. Yet the little old lady I remembered was neither of these things. "'My dear Miss Blakiston,' she wrote, "'but I do hope you will use the house. "'It was because I wanted to be certain that it would be occupied this summer "'that I asked so low a rent for it. "'You may call it a whim if you like, but there are reasons why I wish the house to have a summer tenant. "'It has, for one thing.' "'never been empty since it was built. "'It was my father's pride, and his father's before him, "'that the doors were never locked, even at night. "'Of course I cannot ask a tenant to continue this old custom, "'but I can ask you to reconsider your decision. "'Will you forgive me for saying that you are so exactly the person "'I should like to see in the house, that I feel I cannot give you up? "'So strongly do I feel this, that I would if I dared.' "'enclose your cheque, and beg you to use the house rent-free. "'Faithfully yours, Emily Benton. "'Gracefully worded and carefully written as the letter was, "'I seemed to feel behind it some stress of feeling, "'an excitement, perhaps, totally out of proportion to its contents. "'Years before i had met Miss Emily, "'even then a frail little old lady, her small figure stiffly erect, her eyes cold, her whole bearing wand of reserve. The Bentons, for all their open doors, were known in that part of the country as proud. I can remember, too, how, when I was a young girl, my mother had regarded the rare invitations to have tea and tiny cakes in the Benton parlour as commands no less, and at taking the long carriage ride from the city with complacency. And now Miss Emily last of the family, had begged me to take the house. In the end, as has been shown, I agreed. The glamour of the past had perhaps something to do with it. But I have come to a time of life when, failing intimate interests of my own, my neighbour's interests are mine by adoption. To be frank, I came because I was curious. Why, aside from a money consideration was the Benton house to be occupied by an alien household. It was opposed to every tradition of the family as I had heard of it. I knew something of the family history. The Reverend Thaddeus Benton, Rector of St. Bartholomew, who had forsaken the frame rectory near the church, to build himself the substantial home now being offered me. Miss Emily, his daughter, who must now, I computed, be nearly seventy and a son whom I recalled faintly, as hardly bearing out the Benton traditions of solidity and rectitude. The Reverend Mr. Benton, I recalled, had taken the stand, said his house was his own, and having moved his family into it, had thereafter, save on great occasions, received the congregation individually or en masse in his study at the church. A patriarchal old man, benevolent yet austere, who, once, according to a story I had heard in my girlhood, had horsewhipped one of his vestrymen for trifling with the affections of a young married woman in the village. There was a gap of thirty years in my knowledge of the family. I had, indeed, forgotten its very existence, when, by the chance of a newspaper advertisement, I found myself involved vitally in its affairs, playing providence, indeed. "'and both fearing and hating my role. "'Looking back, there are a number of things that appear rather curious. "'Why, for instance, did Maggie, my old servant, "'develop such a dislike for the place? "'It had nothing to do with the house. "'She had not seen it when she first refused to go. "'But her reluctance was evident from the beginning. "'I've just got a feeling about it, Miss Agnes,' she said, can't explain it any more than I can explain a cold in the head, "'but it's there.' "'At first I was inclined to blame Maggie's feeling "'on her knowledge that the house was cheap. "'She knew it, as she has, I am sure, "'read all my letters for years. "'She has a distrust of a bargain. "'But later I came to believe "'that there was something more to Maggie's distrust, "'as though, perhaps, a wave of uneasiness "'spreading from some unknown source had engulfed her. "'Indeed, looking back over the two months "'I spent at the Benton house, "'I am inclined to go even further. "'If thoughts carry, as I am sure they do, "'then emotions carry. "'Fear, hope, courage, despair. "'If the intention of writing a letter to an absent friend "'can spread itself halfway across the earth, So that, as you write, the friend writes also, and your letters cross, how much more should big emotions carry? I have had sweep over me such waves of gladness, such gusts of despair, as have shaken me, yet with no cause for either. They are gone in a moment. Just for an instant, I have caught and made my own another's joy or grief.' The only inexplicable part of this narrative is that Maggie, neither psychic nor a sensitive type, caught the terror as I came to call it, before I did. Perhaps it may be explainable by the fact that her mental processes are comparatively simple, her mind an empty slate that shows every mark made on it. In a way, this is a study in fear. Maggie's resentment continued through my decision to use the house, through the packing, through the very moving itself. It took the form of a sort of watchful waiting, although at the time we neither of us realized it, and of dislike of the house and its surroundings. It extended itself to the very garden, where she gathered flowers for the table with a ruthlessness that was almost vicious. And as July went on, and Miss Emily made her occasional visits, as tiny, as delicate as herself, I had a curious conclusion forced on me. Miss Emily returned her antagonism. I was slow to credit it. What secret, and even unacknowledged opposition could there be, between my downright Maggie and this little old aristocrat with her frail hands and the soft rustle of silk about her? In Miss Emily it took the form of, how strange a word to use in connection with her, of furtive watchfulness. I felt that Maggie's entrance, with nothing more momentous than a tea-tray, set her upright in her chair, put an edge to her soft voice, and absorbed her. She was still attentive to what I said. She agreed or dissented. But back of it all, with her eyes on me, she was watching Maggie. With Maggie's antagonism took no such subtle form. it showed itself in the second best instead of the best china, and a tendency to weak tea when Miss Emily took hers very strong. And such was the effect of their mutual watchfulness and suspicion. Such, perhaps, was the influence of the staid old house on me. After a time, even that fact of the strong tea began to strike me as incongruous. Miss Emily was so consistent, so consistently frail and dainty, and so, well, unspotted seems to be the word, and so gentle. Yet as time went on, I began to feel that she hated Maggie with a real hatred, and there was the strong tea. Indeed, it was not quite normal, nor was I, for by that time, the middle of July it was, before I figured out as much as I have sat down in five minutes. By that time, I was not certain about the house. It was difficult to say just what I felt about the house. Willie came down over a Sunday early in the summer, possibly voiced it when he came down to his breakfast there. "'How did you sleep?' I asked. "'Not very well.' He picked up his coffee cup and smiled over it rather sheepishly. "'To tell the truth, I got to thinking about things—the furniture and all that,' he said vaguely. "'How many people have sat in the chairs and seen themselves in the mirror and died in the bed and so on?' Maggie, who was bringing in the toast, gave a sort of low moan, which she turned into a cough. "'There have been twenty-three deaths in the last forty years, Mr. Willie,' she volunteered. "'That's according to the gardener.' "'and more than half died in that room of yours.' "'Put down that toast before you drop it, Maggie,' I said. "'You're shaking all over. "'And go out and shut the door.' "'Very well,' she said with a meekness behind which "'she was both indignant and frightened. "'But there is one word I might mention before I go, "'and that is cats.' "'Cats?' said Willie as she slammed the door. "'I think it is only one cat,' I observed mildly. "'It belongs to Miss Emily, I fancy. "'It manages to be in a lot of places nearly simultaneously, "'and Maggie swears it is a dozen.' "'Willie is not subtle. "'He is a practical young man with a growing family, "'and a tendency the last year or two to flesh. "'But he ate his breakfast thoughtfully.' Don't you think it's rather isolated? he yes, asked finally. Just you three women here? I'd taken Delia the cook along. We have a telephone, I said rather loftily. Although I checked myself. Maggie, I felt sure, was listening in the pantry, and I intended to give her wild fancies no encouragement. To utter a thing is to Maggie to give it life. By the mere use of the spoken word, "'It ceases to be supposition and becomes fact. "'As a matter of fact, my uneasiness about the house "'resolved itself into an uneasiness about the telephone. "'It seems less absurd now than it did then, "'but I remember what Willie said about it that morning "'on our way to the church. "'It rings at night, Willie,' I said, "'and when I go, there is no one there. "'So do all telephones.' "'replied briskly. "'It's their greatest weakness. "'Once or twice we have found a thing on the floor in the morning. "'It couldn't blow over or knock itself down.' "'Probably the cat," he said, with the patient air of a man, "'arguing with an unreasonable woman. "'Of course,' he added, "'we were passing the churchyard then, "'dominated by what the village called the Benton Mausoleum. "'There's a chance that those dead-and-gone Bentons— resent anything as modern as a telephone it might be interesting to see what they would do to a victrola i'm going to tell you something Willie,' really, i said i am afraid of the telephone he was completely incredulous i felt rather ridiculous standing there in the sunlight of that summer sabbath and making my confession but i did it i am afraid of it i repeated I am desperately sure you will never understand. Because I don't. I can hardly force myself to go to it. I hate the very back corner of the hall where it stands. I— I saw his expression then, and I stopped, furious with myself. Why had I said it? But more important still, why did I feel it? I had not put it into words before. I had not expected to say it then. But the moment I said it, I knew it was true. I had developed an idefix. "'I have to go downstairs at night and answer it,' I added rather feebly. "'It's on my nerves, I think.' "'I should think it is,' he said with a note of wonder in his voice. "'It doesn't sound like you. A telephone.' But just at the church door he stopped me, a hand on my arm.' "'Look here,' he said. "'Don't you suppose it's because you're so dependent on the telephone? "'You know that if anything goes wrong with it, you're cut off, in a way. "'And there's another point. "'You get all your news over it, good and bad.' "'He had difficulty, I think, in finding the words he wanted. "'It's—it's vital,' he said. "'So you attach too much importance to it, and it gets to be an obsession.' "'Very likely,' I assented.' The whole thing is idiotic, anyhow. But was it idiotic? I am endeavouring to set things down as they seemed to me at the time, not in the light of subsequent events. For if this narrative has any interest at all, it is a psychological one. I have said that it is a study in fear. But perhaps it would be more accurate to say that it is a study of the mental reaction of crime, of its effects on different minds, more or less remotely connected with it. That my analysis of my impressions in the church that morning are not colored by subsequent events is proved by the fact that under cover of that date, July 16th, I made the following entry. Why do Maggie and Miss Benton distrust each other? I realized it even then, although I did not consider it serious, as is evidenced by the fact that I follow it with a recipe for fruit gelatin, copied from the newspaper. It was a calm and sunny Sunday morning. The church windows were wide open, and a butterfly came in, and set the choir boys to giggling. At the end of my pew, a stained-glass window to Carla Benton—the name came like an echo from the forgotten past—sent a shower of colored light over Willie. "'turned my blue silk to most unspinsterly hues "'and threw a sort of summer radiance "'over Miss Emily herself, in the seat ahead. "'She sat quite alone, impeccably neat, "'even to her profile. "'She was so orderly, so well-balanced. "'One stitch of her hand-sewed organdy collar "'was so clearly identical with every other, "'her very seams, if you can understand it, "'ran so exactly where they should "'that she set me to pulling myself straight.' I am rather casual as to seems, after a time, I began to have a curious feeling about her. Her head was toward the rector, standing in a sort of white nimbus of sunlight. But I felt that Miss Emily's entire attention was on our pew immediately behind her. I find I cannot put it into words unless it was that her back settled into more rigid lines. I glanced along the pew. Willie's face wore a calm and slightly somnolent expression. But Maggie, in her far end, she is very high church and always attends. Maggie's eyes were glued almost fiercely to Miss Emily's back. And just then Miss Emily herself stirred, glanced up at the window, and turning slightly, returned Maggie's glance with one almost as malevolent. I've over that word. It seems strong now, but at the time it was the one that came into my mind. When it was over, it was hard to believe that it had happened. And even now, with everything else clear, I do not pretend to explain Maggie's attitude. She knew in some strange way. But she did not know that she knew, which sounds like nonsense, and is as near as I can come to getting it down in words. We left that night, the 16th, and we settled down to quiet days, and, for a time, to undisturbed nights. But on the following Wednesday, by my journal, the telephone commenced to bother me again. Generally speaking, it rang rather early, between eleven o'clock and midnight, but on the following Saturday, I found I have recorded the hour as 2 a.m. In every instance, the experience was identical. The telephone never rang the second time. When I went downstairs to answer it, it did not always go. There was the buzzing of the wire, and there was nothing else. It was on the 24th that I had the telephone inspected and reported in normal condition, and it is possibly significant that for three days afterward, my record shows not a single disturbance. But I do not regard the strange calls over the telephone as so important as my attitude to them. The plain truth is that my fear of the calls extended itself in a few days to cover the instrument, and more than that to the part of the house it stood in. Maggie never had this, nor did she recognize it in me. Her fear was a perfectly simple, although uncomfortable one, centering around the bedrooms, where in each bed she nightly saw dead and gone bentons "'laid out in all the decorum of the best linen. "'On more than one evening she came to the library door "'with an expression of mentally looking over her shoulder, "'and some such dialogue would follow. "'Do you mind if I turn the bed down now, Miss Agnes?' "'It's very early. sate "'When she is nervous, she cuts verbal corners.' "'You know perfectly well that I dislike having the best disturbed "'until nine o'clock, Maggie.' "'I'm going out. "'You said that last night, but you didn't go. "'Silence.' "'Now see here, Maggie. "'I want you to overcome this feeling of—' "'I hesitated. "'Of fear. "'When you've really seen or heard something, "'it will be time enough to be nervous.' (laughs) "'Hmph!' said Maggie on one of these occasions and edged into the room. It was growing dusk. It'll be too late then, Miss Agnes. And another thing, you're a brave woman. I don't know as I've ever seen a braver, but I notice you keep away from the telephone after dark. The general outcome of these conversations was that, to avoid argument, I permitted the preparation of my room for the night at an earlier and yet earlier hour. "'until at last it was done the moment I was dressed for dinner. "'It is clear to me now that two entirely different sorts of fear actuated us, "'for by that time I had to acknowledge that there was fear in the house. "'Even Delia the cook had absorbed some of Maggie's terror, "'possibly traceable to some early impressions of death, "'which connected themselves with the four-post bedstead. "'Of the two sorts of fear— Delia's and Maggie's symptoms were subjective. Mine, I still feel, were objective. It was not long before the beginning of August, and during a lull in the telephone matter, that I began to suspect that the house was being visited at night. There was nothing I could point to with any certainty as having been disturbed at first. It was a matter of a book misplaced on the table, of my sewing-basket open when I always leave it closed. "'of a burnt match on the floor, Rascit it is one of my orderly habits "'never to leave burnt matches around. "'And at last the burnt match became a sort of clue, "'for I suspected that it had been used "'to light one of the candles "'that sat in holders of every sort "'on top of the library shelves. "'I tried getting up at night "'and peering over the banisters, "'but without result, "'and I was never sure as to articles "'that had been moved.' I remained in that doubting and suspicious halfway ground that is worse than certainty. And there was the matter of motive. I could not get away from that. What possible purpose could an intruder have, for instance, in opening my sewing-basket or moving the dictionary two inches on the center table? Yet the feeling persisted, and on the 2nd of August I find this entry in my journal, right hand brass eight inches, left hand brass, seven inches, carved wood, Italian, five and three quarter inches each, old glass and mantelpiece, seven inches, and below this dated the third, last night, between midnight and daylight, the candle in the glass holder on the right side of the mantel was burned down one and a half inches. I SHOULD NO DOUBT HAVE SET A WATCH ON MY nightly VISITOR AFTER MAKING THIS DISCOVERY, AND ONE THAT WAS APPARENTLY CONNECTED WITH IT, NOTHING LESS THAN DELIA'S REPORT THAT THERE WERE CANDLE DROPPINGS OVER THE BORDER OF THE LIBRARY CARPET, BUT I HAVE ADMITTED THAT THIS IS A STUDY IN FEAR, AND A PART OF IT IS MY OWN. I WAS AFRAID. I WAS AFRAID OF THE night VISITOR. BUT MORE THAN THAT, I WAS AFRAID OF THE FEAR. IT HAD BECOME A REAL THING BY THAT TIME, SOMETHING THAT LURKED IN THE LOWER BACK HALL, WAITING TO CATCH ME BY THE THROAT, TO STOP MY BREATH, TO PARALYZE ME SO I COULD NOT ESCAPE. I NEVER WENT BEYOND THAT POINT. YET I AM NOT A cowardly WOMAN. I'VE LIVED ALONE TOO LONG FOR THAT. I'VE CLOSED TOO MANY HOUSES AT NIGHT, AND GONE UPSTAIRS IN THE DARK, TO BE AFRAID OF DARKNESS. And even now I cannot, looking back, admit that I was afraid of the darkness there, although I resorted to the weak expedient of leaving a short length of candle to burn itself out in the hall when I went up to bed. I have seen one of Willie's boys waken up at night screaming with a terror he could not describe. Well, it was much like that with me, except that I was awake and horribly ashamed of myself. "'On the 4th of August, I find in my journal the single word, "flower." "'It recalls both my own cowardice at that time "'and an experiment I made. "'The telephone had not bothered us for several nights, "'and I began to suspect a connection of this sort. "'When the telephone rang, "'there was no night visitor, and vice versa. "'I was not certain. "'Delia was setting bread that night in the kitchen.' "'and Maggie was reading a ghost story from the evening paper. "'There was a fine sifting of flour over the table, and it gave me my idea. "'When I went up to bed that night, "'I left a powdering of flour here and there on the lower floor, "'at the door into the library, a patch by the table, "'and, going back rather uneasily, one near the telephone. "'I was up and downstairs before Maggie the next morning.' The patches showed trampling. In the doorway they were almost obliterated, as by the trailing of a garment over them. But by the fireplace there were two prints quite distinct. I knew when I saw them that I had expected the marks of Miss Emily's tiny foot, although I had not admitted it before. But these were not Miss Emily's. They were large, flat, substantial. "'and showed a curious marking around the edge that it was my own. "'The marking was the knitted side of my bedroom slipper. "'I had, so far as I could tell, gone downstairs in the night, "'investigated the candles, possibly in darkness, and gone back to bed again. "'The effect of the discovery on me was, well, undermining. "'In all the uneasiness of the past few weeks,' I HAD AT LEAST HAD FULL CONFIDENCE IN MYSELF, AND NOW THAT WAS GONE. I BEGAN TO WONDER HOW MUCH OF THE THINGS THAT HAD TROUBLED ME WERE REAL, AND HOW MANY I HAD MADE FOR MYSELF. TO TELL THE TRUTH, BY THAT TIME THE TENSION WAS ALMOST UNBEARABLE. MY NERVES WERE GOING, AND THERE WAS NO REASON FOR IT. I KEPT TELLING MYSELF THAT. IN THE MIRROR I LOOKED WHITE AND ANXIOUS. "'and I had a sense of approaching trouble. "'I caught Maggie watching me too, "'and on the seventh I found in my journal the words, "'Insanity is often only a formless terror. "'On Sunday morning, following that, "'I found three burnt matches in the library fireplace, "'and one of the candles in the brass holders was almost gone. "'I sat most of the day in that room, "'wondering what would happen to me if I lost my mind.' I knew that Maggie was watching me, and I made one of those absurd hypotheses to myself that we all do at times. If any of the family came, I would know that she had sent for them, and that I was really deranged. It had been a long day, with a steady summer rain that had not cooled the earth, but only set it steaming. The air was like hot vapor, and my hair clung to my moist forehead. At about four o'clock, Maggie started chasing a fly with a folded newspaper. She followed it about the lower floor from room to room, making little harsh noises in her throat when she missed it. The sound of the soft thud of the paper on the walls and furniture seemed suddenly more than I could bear. For heaven's sake, I cried. Stop that noise, Maggie. I felt as though my eyes were starting from my head. It's a fly, she said doggedly. "'and aimed another blow at it. "'If I don't kill it, we'll have a million. "'There! It's on the mantel now. "'I never... "'I felt that if she raised the paper club once more, "'I should scream. "'So I got up quickly and caught her wrist. "'She was so astonished that she let the paper drop, "'and there we stood, staring at each other. "'I can still see the way her mouth hung open. "'Don't!' I said and my voice sounded thick even to my own ears. "'Maggie, I can't stand it!' "'My God, Miss Agnes!' Her tone brought me up sharply. I released her arm. Uh, "'I'm just nervous, Maggie,' I said and sat down. I was trembling violently. I was sane. I knew it then as I know it now but I was not rational. Perhaps to most of us come now and then, times when they realize that some act or some thought is not balanced, as though for a moment or an hour, the control was gone from the brain. Or, and I think this was the feeling I had, that some other control was in charge. Not the Agnes Blakiston I knew, but another Agnes Blakiston, perhaps, was exerting a temporary dominance, a hectic, "'craven and hateful control. "'That is the only outburst I recall. "'Possibly Maggie may have others stored away. "'She has a tenacious memory. "'Certainly it was my nearest approach to violence, "'but it had the effect of making me set a watch on myself. "'Possibly it was coincidence. "'Probably, however, Maggie had communicated with Willie. "'But two days later, Young Martin Sprague, Freda Sprague's son, stopped his car in the drive and came in. He is a nerve specialist, and very good, although I can remember when he came down in his night drawers to one of his mother's dinner parties. "'Thought I would just run in and see you,' he said. "'Mother told me you were here.' "'By George, Miss Agnes, you look younger than ever.' "'Who told you to come, Marty?' I asked. "'Told me? I don't have to be told to visit an old friend.' "'Well,' he asked himself to lunch, and looked over the house, "'and decided to ask Miss Emily if she would sell an old Japanese cabinet, "'inlaid with mother-of-pearl, that I would not have had as a gift. "'And in the end I told him my trouble, "'of the fear that seemed to centre around the telephone,' "'and the sleep-walking.' "'He listened carefully. "'Ever get any bad news over the telephone?' he asked. "'One way and another. "'I said I had had plenty of it. "'He went over me thoroughly, "'and was inclined to find my experience with the flower "'rather amusing than otherwise.' "'It's rather good, that,' he said. "'Setting a trap to catch yourself? "'You'd better have Maggie sleep in your room for a while.' Well, it's all pretty plain, Miss Agnes. We bury some things as deep as possible, especially if we don't want to remember that they ever happened. But the mind's a queer thing. It holds on pretty hard, and burying is not destroying. Then we get tired or nervous. Maybe just holding the thing down and pretending it's not there makes us nervous, and up it pops, like the ghost of a buried body, and raises hell. "'You don't mind that, do you?' he added anxiously. "'It's exactly what those things do, raise." "'But,' I demanded irritably, "'who rings the telephone at night? "'I dare say you don't contend that I go out at night "'and call the house and then come back and answer the call, do you?' "'He looked at me with a maddening smile. "'Are you sure it really rings?' he asked. "'And so bad was my nervous condition by that time.' So undermined was my self-confidence that I was not certain. And this in face of the fact that it invariably roused Maggie as well as myself. On the 11th of August, Miss Emily came to tea. The date does not matter, but by following the chronology of my journal, I find I can keep my narrative in proper sequence. i had felt better that day, so far as I could determine, had not walked in my sleep again, and there was about Maggie an air of cheerfulness and relief, which showed that my condition was more nearly normal than it had been for some time. The fear of the telephone and of the back hall was leaving me, too. Perhaps Martin Sprague's matter-of-fact explanation had helped me, but my own theory had always been the one I recorded at the beginning of this narrative, that I caught and— well, registered is a good word, that I registered an overwhelming fear from some unknown source. I spied Miss Emily as she got out of the hack that day, a cool little figure clad in a thin black silk dress with the sheerest possible white collars and cuffs. Her small bonnet with its crape veil was faced with white, and her carefully crimped gray hair showed a wavy border beneath it. Mr. Staley, the station hackman, helped her out of the Surrey, and handed her the knitting bag, without which she was seldom seen. It was two weeks since she had been there, and she came slowly up the walk, looking from side to side at the perennial borders, then in full August bloom. She smiled when she saw me in the doorway, and said with a little anxious pucker between her eyes, that was so childish— Don't you think peanuts are better cut down at this time of year? She took a folded handkerchief from her bag and dabbed at her face, where there was no sign of dust to mar its old freshness. It gives the lilies a better chance, my dear. I led her into the house and she produced a gay bit of knitting, a baby Afghan by the signs. She smiled at me over it. I'm always one baby behind, she explained. "'and fell to work rapidly. "'She had lovely hands, "'and I suspected them of being her one vanity. "'Maggie was serving tea with her usual grudging reluctance, "'and I noticed then that when she was in the room "'Miss Emily said little or nothing. "'I thought it probable that she did not approve "'of conversing before servants, "'and would have let it go at that "'had I not, as I held out Miss Emily's cup, "'caught her looking at Maggie.' I had a swift impression of antagonism again, of alertness, and something more. When Maggie went out, Miss Emily turned to me. She is very capable, I fancy. Very, entirely too capable. She looks sharp, said Miss Emily. It was a long time since I had heard the word so used, but it was very apt. Maggie was indeed sharp, but Miss Emily launched into a general dissertation on servants, and Maggie's sharpness was forgotten. It was, I think, when she was about to go, that I asked her about the telephone. Telephone? she inquired. Why, no. It is always done very well. Of course, after a heavy snow in the winter sometimes... "'She had a fashion of leaving her sentences unfinished. "'They trailed off without any abrupt break. "'It rings at night. "'Rings? "'I'm called frequently, and when I get to the phone, there is no one there.' "'Some of my irritation doubtless got into my voice, "'for Miss Emily suddenly drew away and stared at me. "'But that is very strange. I—' "'She had gone pale.' I saw that now, and quite suddenly she dropped her knitting bag. When I restored it to her, she was very calm and poised, but her color had not come back. It has always been very satisfactory, she said. I don't know that it ever... She considered and began again. Why not just ignore it? If someone is playing a malicious trick on you, THE ONLY THING IS TO IGNORE IT. HER HANDS WERE SHAKING, ALTHOUGH HER VOICE WAS QUIET. I SAW THAT WHEN SHE TRIED TO TIE THE RIBBONS OF THE BAG. AND I WONDERED AT THIS, IN SO GENTLE A SOUL. THERE WAS A HINT OF ANGER IN HER TONES. THERE WAS AN EDGE TO HER VOICE. THAT SHE COULD BE ANGRY WAS A SURPRISE. AND I FOUND THAT SHE COULD ALSO BE OBSTINATE. "'for we came to an impasse over the telephone in the next few minutes, "'and over something so absurd that I was nonplussed. "'It was over her unqualified refusal "'to allow me to install a branch wire to my bedroom. "'But,' I expostulated, "'when one thinks of the convenience and—' "'I am sorry.' "'Her voice had a note of finality. "'I dare say I am old-fashioned, "'but I do not like changes.' I shall have to ask you not to interfere with the telephone. I could hardly credit my senses. Her tone was one of reproof, plus decision. It convicted me of an indiscretion. If I had asked to take the roof off and replace it with silk umbrellas, it might have been justified. But to a request to move the telephone? Of course, if you feel that way about it, I said, I shall not touch it. I dropped the subject, a trifle ruffled, I confess, and went upstairs to fetch a box in which Miss Emily was to carry away some flowers from the garden. It was when I was coming down the staircase that I saw Maggie. She had carried the hall candlesticks, newly polished, to their places on the table, and was standing, a hand on each one, staring into the old Washington mirror in front of her. From where she was, she must have had a full view of Miss Emily in the library. and Maggie was bristling. It was the only word for it. She was still there when Miss Emily had gone, blowing on the mirror and polishing it, and I took her to task for her unfriendly attitude to the little old lady. "'You practically threw her muffins at her,' I said, "'and I must speak again about the cups.' "'What does she come snooping around for, anyhow?' "'She broke in. "'Aren't we paying for her house? then not she get down on her bended knees and beg us to take it. Is that any reason why we should be uncivil?' "'What I want to know is this,' said Maggie, truculently. "'What right has she to come back and spy on us? "'For that's what she's doing, Miss Agnes. "'Do you know what she was at when I looked in at her? "'She was running a finger along the baseboard to see if it was clean.' "'And what's more, I caught her at it once before, "'in the back hall, when she was pretending "'to telephone for the station hack.' "'It was that day, I think, "'that I put fresh candles in all the holders downstairs. "'I'd made a resolution like this, "'to renew the candles, and to lock myself in my room "'and throw the key over the transom to Maggie. "'If in the morning, said followed, "'the candles had been used,' It would prove that Martin Sprague was wrong, that even footprints could lie, and that someone was investigating the lower floor at night. For while my reason told me that I had been the intruder, my intuition continued to insist that my sleepwalking was a result, not a cause. In a word, I had gone downstairs because I knew that there had been, and might be again, a night visitor. "'that there was something of comedy in that night's precautions, after all. "'At ten-thirty I was undressed, "'and Maggie had, with rebellion in every line of her, locked me in. "'I could hear her afterwards running along the hall to her own room "'and slamming the door. "'Then, a moment later, the telephone rang. "'It was too early, I reasoned, for the night calls. "'It might be anything, a telegram at the station.' "'Willie's boy run over by an automobile, "'Gertrude's children ill. "'A dozen possibilities ran through my mind, "'and Maggie would not let me out.' "'You're not going downstairs,' she called from a safe distance. "'Maggie,' I cried sharply, and banged at the door. "'The telephone was ringing steadily. "'Come here at once!' "'Miss Agnes,' she beseeched, "'you go to bed and don't listen.' "'There be nothing there for all your trouble,' she said in a quavering voice. "'It's nothing, human, that rings that bell.' Finally, however, she freed me, and I went down the stairs. I had carried in a lamp, and my nerves were vibrating to the rhythm of the bell's shrill summons. But strangely enough, the fear had left me. I find, as always, that it is difficult to put into words. I did not relish the excursion to the lower floor— I resented the jarring sound of the bell, but the terror was gone. I went back to the telephone. Something that was living and moving was there. I saw its eyes, lower than mine, reflecting the lamp like twin lights. I was frightened, but still it was not the fear. The twin lights leaped forward and proved to be the eyes of Miss Emily's cat, "'which had been sleeping on the stand. "'I answered the telephone. "'To my surprise, it was Miss Emily herself, "'a quiet and very dignified voice, "'which apologized for disturbing me at that hour, and went on. "'I feel that I was very abrupt this afternoon, Miss Blakiston. "'My excuse is that I have always feared change. "'I've lived in a rut too long, I'm afraid.' "'But, of course, if you feel you will like to move the telephone "'or put an upstairs instrument, you may do so as you like.' "'She seemed having got me there, and willing to ring off. "'I got a curious effect of reluctance over the telephone, "'and there was one phrase that she repeated several times. "'I do not want to influence you. "'I want you to do just what you think best.' The fear was entirely gone by the time she rang off. I felt instead a sort of relaxation that was most comforting. The rear hall, a cul-de-sac of nervousness in the daytime and of horror at night, was suddenly transformed by the light of my lamp into a warm and cheerful refuge from the darkness of the lower floor. The purring of the cat, comfortably settled on the telephone stand, was as cheering as the singing of a kettle on the stove. On a rack near me, my garden hat and an old paisley shawl made a grotesque human effigy. I sat back in the low wicker chair and surveyed the hallway. Why not, I considered, do away now with the fear of it? If I could conquer it, like this at midnight, I need never succumb again to it in the light. The cat leaped to the stand beside me and stood there, waiting. "'He was an intelligent animal, and I am like a good many spinsters. "'I am not more fond of cats than other people, but I understand them better. "'And it seemed to me that he and I were going through some familiar program "'of which a part had been neglected. "'The cat neither sat nor lay, but stood there, waiting. "'So at last I fetched the shawl from the rack and made him a bed on the stand.' It was what he had been waiting for. I saw that at once. He walked on to it, turned around once, lay down, and closed his eyes. I took up my vigil. I had been the victim of a fear I was determined to conquer. The house was quiet. Maggie had retired, shriveled to bed. The cat slept on a shawl. And then... I felt the fear returning. It welled up through my tranquillity like a flood and swept me with it. I wanted to shriek. I was afraid to shriek. I longed to escape. I dared not move. There had been no sound, no motion. Things were as they had been. It may have been one minute or five that I sat there. I do not know. I ONLY KNOW THAT I SAT WITH FIXED EYES, NOT EVEN BLINKING, FOR FEAR OF EVEN FOR A SECOND SHUTTING OUT THE SANE AND VISIBLE WORLD ABOUT ME. A SENSE OF DEADNESS COMMENCED IN MY HANDS AND WORKED UP MY ARMS. MY CHEST SEEMED FLATTENED. THEN THE TELEPHONE BELL RANG. THE CAT LEAPED TO ITS FEET. SOMEHOW, I REACHED FORWARD. "'and took down the receiver. "'Who is it?' I cried in a voice that was thin, "'I knew, and unnatural. "'The telephone is not a perfect medium. "'It loses much that we wish to register, "'but also it registers much that we may wish to lose. "'Therefore, when I say that I distinctly heard a gasp, "'followed by heavy, difficult breathing over the telephone, "'I must beg for credence.' IT IS TRUE. SOMEONE AT THE OTHER END OF THE LINE WAS STRUGGLING FOR BREATH. THEN THERE WAS COMPLETE SILENCE. I REALIZED AFTER A MOMENT THAT THE CIRCUIT HAD BEEN STEALTHILY CUT, AND THAT MY CONVICTION WAS VERIFIED BY CENTRAL'S DEMAND A MOMENT LATER OF WHAT NUMBER I WANTED. I WAS, AT FIRST, UNABLE TO ANSWER HER. WHEN I DID SPEAK, MY VOICE WAS SHAKEN. What number, please? she repeated in a bored tone. There is nothing in all the world so bored as the voice of a small-town telephone operator. You called, I said. Beg your pardon. Must have been a mistake, she replied glibly and cut me off. End of Chapter 1